everyone. Welcome to uh, If You've Come This Far. This is Sean, and um, this is a podcast where my friend Chris and I have uh, authentic conversations with interesting people about what's going on in their life and what they're trying to do to uh, live life to its fullest. And they may actually have some lessons for us along the way. This episode, we're talking to John Sherman, uh, a friend of a friend of Chris's, longtime friend. Um, tell us about Sherm. Yeah. So, so, so Dr. John Sherman, who I discovered early in our conversation when I tried to call him John, um, I can't, I can't do it. I got to call him Sherm. He's a dear dear friend of mine. He's a clinical psychologist here in Chicago. Um, I would say that in addition to his most noteworthy credential of being the lead guitar picker in the bluegrass band Hayward, in which I also play. Um, it's, yeah, John Sherm studied undergrad at Duke and then received his PhD from Northwestern University. So he practices psychotherapy here. Um, yeah, you know, he is. He he's focused, or he does a lot of work with with couples and adolescents mm-hmm. and eating disorders. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I I, I love Sherm. Um, and also, I don't ever get enough of this time where I get to. You know, Sherman and I are always playing music, and we're not. Yeah. We're not talking. So this was a real treat right. for me. But um, you know, we covered all sorts of ground. We covered his roots as a therapist, really, even going back to his time as a, as a camp counselor at, at Camp yep. North Star up in Wisconsin. And um, you know, Sherm talked about the role that humor can play in, in therapy mm-hmm. in terms of demystifying it and breaking some tension. Um, uh, man, we went all over the place, talked about the epidemic of anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. um, male friendships, the importance of those. Uh, and, you know, had his phone battery not run out. Uh, we also, we also, uh, Sherm confessed to being a Luddite. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so we had this convoluted Confessed and confirm and confirm yeah. Yeah. during the yeah. during the interview. Yeah. So he was he was so meek about it too, right? Yeah. Like oh, yeah. like it's you like you could almost hear the shoulder shrug. Um yeah. um, but yeah, he we had this convoluted setup and he was in my office and you know, uh his See, battery, you actually you out. actually learned stuff about him in the interview. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which was just really interesting to me. Yeah. And, you know, um, we had leaned on, on Sherm um, when our older daughter was struggling with anorexia Um, Mm -hmm. and he, and I I think that this comes out in the conversation. He is, um, he is a, a gifted therapist, the way that he's able to make ideas and, and help us to see things, um, that are not easy to see. And he, he, he's really, really good at that. Um, he's just a sweet, sweet, funny yeah. man, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, uh, it must have something to do with camp. Cause Jason Frischman is a sweet guy. Sherm is a sweet guy. They have this camp background. I, you know, I don't we, know. We need but. to, we need to get some of these camps to sponsor the podcast and we can start sending kids that way. Right. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, completely aside from our conversation with, with, with Sherm, I mean, I, I, my kids have gone to camp, um, some more rigorously than others, but I do think camp is a great place to sort of grow up and find your people or find out yeah. what, who your people are. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and my, and the band that I referenced, our band is called Hayward named after the town in which 
Camp North Star is, yeah, because right. th- three of our band members went there, and so I know for them it was very formative. Um, and you know, in Sherm's case, it, it probably led at least indirectly to his vocation as a, as yeah. a therapist. So, yeah, was there uh, some debate on on who is a better guitar player? No, there's no, musician? there's no debate whatsoever. Sherm is hands down the, the most talented um, uh, musician. He understands music. The rest of us are totally faking it. Like a lot of things. <laughs> <in life>. <laughs> <laughs> but you All can right. do that. That's the beauty of, of live it's the music. Joy. Right? It's the joy of just yeah. playing. It's the right. conversation yeah. that, that you get from yeah. From, I mean, look, like, have we ever done a perfect podcast or had a perfect interview? No. Well, that's right. That's yeah. an, people that are listening right now just said no. no. <laughs> Quick, more no. quickly than I did. No. Right. No. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, well, and I think the thing about Sherm is, to your point, he he loves what he does, and so you know, again, not only is this conversation entertaining, but I think it's I think it's informative as well. I think so too. Uh, yeah. I, w- I would even go so far as to say that that the guy uh, and that conversation inspire me uh, yeah. um, so yes. to, to be better. So, and that's why we yeah. do this thing, right? Yes, sir. Here, sure. sure. Uh, the first rule to mental health is getting rid of mirrors. <laughs> Love yeah. it. I mean, this is about the most improper introduction I think I've ever done. Uh, Sean Thanks Emerson, a lot. Well, Sean Emerson, <laughs> say hello to John Sherman. John, John Sherman. Hi, finally, Sean. finally. Yeah. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So, uh, so we're recording despite all the odds. I know there were many in business right now uh john i was making i can't call you john sure i was i was making fun of you before you got here to Thanks. to sean uh, we were we were talking about what a luddite you are um, yes. you, you're slow to adopt technology exactly but i don't is there a reason behind that well i spend most of my life in my head <laughs> so <laughs> um and then i'm all analog in terms of like what it means to be a good therapist, you are tracking narrative and speech all day mm-hmm. and visual cues. And so tech has never really grabbed me, you know, mm. uh, we're, we're going to come back to this because the idea of technology in the mental health space is, is, is sort of a hot topic. It's one that yeah, we think about. I know you do too. We're going to come back to that. Um, and Sherm, I don't know if you recall, I know if you listened to a few episodes, I think, but yeah, we'll Sean and I'll record an intro later that sort of sure. highlights what we've talked about and who you are. But um, I'd first want to say um, that this podcast is a huge gift for me, but it doesn't get any better than when I get to talk to two friends who I love. Um, so this is like <laughs> a treat and I've been waiting for this for, mm-hmm. for a while. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, and it's a good thing, as Sherman and I were discussing on the way up in the elevator, it's a good thing we didn't bring instruments. Otherwise, we'd be here at my <laughs> office be, yeah. all night. Yeah. All night. I think the listeners are going to be a little disappointed that they're not going to hear you two jam. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure about how good I would sound. So, um, <laughs> Lozier, don't you do the music to your intro? Yeah. You know what that was, Sherm? Our, all of the music I use in this, I had... Um, um, Nick, the hit maker, had asked me uh-huh. and Andy Pennington and Dan Fuchs to get together to record music 
for the podcast that the guy who used to run car or the guy who started cards against humanity he oh had a, yeah he had a podcast and so he wanted some music so we went over there to the offices of cards against humanity one evening years ago um and just laid down a bunch of little ditties right and i don't think he ever used it so when we, when sean and i started this podcast and you know you got to be careful what you can't just go and grab any music you, it's that's right. all it's just licensed right so i'm like i know where there's a source of music that i effectively own is so that's that's how we got to that um, nice yeah and and the listeners Thanks. may never heard the fact that that is you and and your cohorts at the beginning of the show yeah beginning. oh i've just yeah. blew your cover yeah you blew my cover um by the way the, the mandolin is not what makes that music sound good let's be clear <laughs> and you could probably say that about all bluegrass music so sherm's a killer no. guitar player yeah no stop yeah um uh, it's true it's true that's, so, that's another <laughs> podcast that is another podcast <laughs> so we'll do we'll do the intro but but um sherm as I was describing yes. you to 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 Sean, it, it occurred to me that there's there's actually still a lot about you that I don't know. Um, That's true. Um, so first things first, you grew up in Chicago, right? Yeah, but for full transparency, I grew up in Glencoe, even though I like to say Chicago because <laughs> it's not as um, privilegy and pristine as my actual roots were. And and my daughter, yeah, I, was a, I was a Glencoe boy and a New Trier high school kid. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, my my daughters, by the way, definitely take issue when, like, when they go to summer camp with with kids saying they're from Chicago, and then turns out they're from Elmhurst or, or Glencoe. Yes. So yeah, you don't want to get in that with them. Sure. How no. how how? Um, now here's another thing I, I don't know exactly. I have a good idea, but. Have you been, has a therapist been your only job as an adult? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> it's, which is shocking. I tried to get a job at McDonald's. They wouldn't take me. I think I overthought it in the interview. <laughs> and then um, I was a camp counselor all up until graduate school and went straight into my first internship. The first summer I couldn't go be a camp counselor was in grad school. Where were you a camp counselor? At uh, North Star Camp for Boys up in Hayward, uh, Wisconsin. That's yep. right. It's a pretty special place. I did get to yeah, go there that one year. There was a lot of a lot of us turned out to be social workers and there like you were young men choosing to spend your summers with only boys and men and taking care of kids. So it by the it was ideal for me. After like Nutrier and college was not my cup of tea masculinity wise, camp was this like haven for like owning caretaking sensibility and skills, hanging out with guys, not about like getting drunk and other stuff. Um, so it was just a natural place. A lot of teachers, social workers, therapists came out of. Sure. Say a little bit more for me, because I've never heard you describe North Star this way. You just mentioned something about the type of boy you were or the type of, of yeah. boys that were attracted to um, to Camp North Star. Yeah, we were considered like the less a competitive place that 
emphasize like the cabin experience more. And it was prided itself on breeding. A lot of the kids would then move into becoming counselors and training and then stay on to be counselors. I was there like 12 years. Mm. So many of my peer peers were there for so many years. Wait, uh, so it was, it was a special place. Are you saying that you worked there even after college? Yeah. 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 Up until grad, grad school. When I had to stop, I had to eventually stay in the summers to my first training site was the VA psychiatric locked unit. So my job before that was camp for 11 years or whatever. And then I was on the locked unit of the VA. And that was it from there on. I had to be a therapist for the rest of my life. Man, there's there's so much I want to I want to explore here about some bigger issues, but, 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 um, this is a rare chance. Usually when Sherman and I are together, it's to play music and we're right. like, the, we're like the first two that get our instruments out of the case and start playing. Yes. And so there, there's, there's never enough time to talk, but when, when you graduated from college, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you have uh, some idea that you wanted to go back to grad school to be a, count, a therapist? Yeah. It, um, it emerged, I started out, I started out thinking I would be, it go to med school and become a psychoanalyst because I had seen the movie Ordinary People and like fell, which is super dated now, but it was Judd Hirsch was a therapist uh, for a young man and they had this deep process where he discovered a repressed trauma and that just blew me away. I both identified like with the young man who was struggling, but also so much with the therapist. I was like, that's a cool job. Um, but then I talked to people and said, well, to be a psychoanalyst, you got to go to med school. And I didn't really know myself that well. So I committed to that and then was getting a D in calculus and chemistry at my freshman year of Duke. I was like, what am I doing? And I was like, I'm a reader and a writer. I better get out of this and committed to like an English major. And then later in college, a professor introduced me to clinical psych. He said, if you're like a book guy and you like these novels for all the drama and the psychological depth and you wanted to go help people there, you can get a PhD and you can bypass the medical school part. I'm like, oh, okay. And then um, I went straight out into Northwestern grad school, which I do not recommend. I was like in over my head maturity wise. And now years later, like, why didn't I go run around for two or three years? But at the time I stayed totally on track and went straight into grad school uh, and then was training. That's about a six year journey there. Mm. Is that right? Holy shit. Um, so, so you just, at least you talk about not knowing yourself at the time, but I, I, I know, I suspect you, you're, you're, you're downplaying how well you knew yourself, but, but do you, how much of, of you deciding on this career path and this sort of, cause I think it, we, we talk to people on this podcast. Most of the time we're talking to people who, whose professional lives are sort of vocational and they're not just, Oh, I'm going to pay the bills and, and, and grill yeah. on the grill. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's true for you too, but how much of you choosing this sort of career path slash vocation was nurture was nature 
versus nurture. And then the nurture side, how much of it would you say is your upbringing and how much of it may have been Camp North Star? Because, because I know that was a super formative place for you. I think North Star was like the first time I witnessed like my paternal side, like mixing with a clinical side, you could say, because at, at North Star, I became like a young kid specialist. And like for also like they would give me in my cabin kids that were struggling, like bedwetters and anxiety kids. And um, mm. one year I tease lab, the director, about I got the kid whose parents were going to tell him they were divorcing midweek, uh, mid, mid, mid season parents visiting weekend. And I was supposed to deal with the next four weeks of the poor mm. kid's life after the announcing of the divorce. So I was like discovering my persona and a capability at that time, as I was also running around, having a good time and goofing around. So uh, when, so, a, so at what age, what age did you start being a counselor then? How old were you when you were doing you're that? Very you're young. That? Well, you, I think you transition your CIT year as, as young as 16 and yeah. then you're a junior counselor at 17. You do two years of that. And by 19, you're a senior counselor, I think. And then mm. I, I stayed until I became a, the junior village director, like the counselor for the counselors kind of thing. So, and I was help, I was leaned on by people much older than me, but with less experience taking care of kids sometimes. And so I was yeah. kind of discovering things about myself that way. And then I guess another piece would be, I was very identified, even though I was not very religious, I was really influenced by my rabbi growing up and the way that rabbis think and reason with all these questions, more questions than answers kind of approach to discernment. That fascinated me. And then very much with metaphors and parables, a huge thing mm. in psychotherapy, at least the way I do it over the years, is like, what is like the storytelling aspect of it and how to inspire client, clients and normalize things and help them contextualize things through storytelling. So like mm -hmm. the rabbi part and the English major kind of came together. I really appreciate that my dad kind of got out of my way. Uh, I've heard so many stories of fathers and mothers that like tried to influence really strongly what you should do. My dad was like, go for it. Like he was a lawyer and was happy at that, but he, but he could tell there was more restlessness in me and he encouraged it. Um, and that was helpful. No, I just want to know how long is a season at camp? It's, in that era, it was eight weeks. Now camps okay. have gone to like four, four week sessions, but you were gone. Like when I grew up, I would go ship out in like June and come home in August, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was just normal. And that was, it was cool to grow up there as a young kid, especially from Glencoe, because you got to know yourself in like backpacking and canoeing and archery mm -hmm. and things that you don't get exposed to in Glencoe and then the cabin process too of like, who's going to become a leader in the cabin, who's a troublemaker, 
when people turn on each other, all that kind of stuff going on in the cabin. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like a, a separate graduate degree. It sounds like, right. Like it, some of the skills you learn. Yeah. My, my hope, my hope is that, is that the, <laughs> I hate to bring this back up again, but that the, the, the parents who decided it would be a good idea to let their kid know about their divorce while he's at camp. I hope they got some therapy somewhere along the line. I'm, yeah. It's funny. I mean, I, I have a lot of, I mean, I do, I do a lot of couples work. I obviously guide people through divorce when it doesn't work out. And I feel for the parent, like the parents are just devastated and they project that onto the kids and, mm. and people just don't, they just, I mean, that's where a good therapist can come in to guide you on behaviors that you would be too squeamish to take on your own. Uh, So Mm. I, I empathize with those parents, even though like you just now left this all in a 18 year old's lap, you know, that like, this is crazy. Um, You're leading me into a question I wanted to ask. Sherm. I don't know enough about your profession to know if you have formal uh, or official specialty areas. Um, A, do you, and, and whether or not you do, can you tell us about sort of the people that you most yeah. work with? Your graduates in my era in the eighties, you could get to a lot of generalist programs that had clinical philosophies, but didn't really train necessarily you specifically in the present era. PhDs have become really hard to get and you have to kind of go in on a track usually and mentor under a professor or a lab like depression um anxiety a specific disorder my era i chose a place northwestern had a philosophy uh which was more psychodynamic but it was um but i was exposed to all populations over the course of the training over the time, I saw that one area that I really liked was adolescence and then also eating disorders. Cause I grew up on the North shore. I could parlay sort of that like exposure to that culture and the good and the bad of it and how it produced a lot of eating disorders. And I knew so many eating disordered friends and that became a specialty area that I trained in. And then was on staff in the eating disorders program for a number of years before I went into private practice. I went from the graduate program and then was on staff in the eating disorders program and then launched a private practice. If you're out a lot of years and practice the way I do, you end up, it's more about the relationships you form with psychiatrists, internists, your prior clients who send you. So I do so much overall now. I still have a certain percentage of eating disorder clients I get. And then I sort of dedicated myself probably 15 years ago to couples work too, to diversify because I, um, low, I, it's impossible to prove you have a sense of humor uh, to other people, like the worst thing, if you are funny is to say you're funny, but I do have a sense of humor and couples work allows you to have a sense of humor, uh, more than individual. You can be more irreverent. You can try to break 
up the thickness of the atmosphere. You can help people experience the absurdity of marriage and long-term relationships and children and family life. And it, and that, and then you have to referee a lot more. You have to be more active. So I kind of got restless just doing individual at one point and diversified into couples too, which has been a good mix for me. So, so hold on, Sean. Is there someone close to you in your life who likes to tell you that they're funny? You already know this. Yeah. <laughs> my wife, my wife, my wife thinks she's the funny one. Uh-huh. She's not. To herself. She like yeah. thinks she's funny. Um, so, so this idea of humor, we, uh, Chris and I talked with um, Joe Conrad, who started the man therapy um, mm. uh, campaign, uh, and they use humor in, in, in the issue, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with men's mental health and, and suicide. Um, does that, I mean, you talk about couples where it's easier to, to work with humor. Um, does that resonate with you and using it, yeah. using it on an individual basis too, though? Yeah, I use it. A, I use it a lot. I was thinking about this approaching, like how, I mean, I don't talk it's a funny profession. I do it for 30 years and I rarely talk about what I do directly. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to think about it, but yes, I would say humor is part of it. um, But also related to like the overall project of like demystifying therapy and demystifying mental health and also helping no one learns in therapy or feels benefit if they don't relax. Right. And humor is one of the best ways to calm people down. And first sessions, I think as I've done this more, I think the first session is an incredibly important moment to take, to make it go as well as you can. And I don't think Mm -hmm. all therapists put as much attention into that first session. In that first session, I know I try to break the tension a little bit through humor and rapport skills. um, And disarm people of like that image that they have to go from meeting a stranger. This is very true with a lot of men. The They're so intimidated from going to meet a stranger. And then they're like, am I supposed to now cry in front of you, Dr. Sherman? I'm like, no, you do not have to cry yet. Eventually, I'm sure I will make you cry, but it will sneak up on you. <laughs> so, so did you say, back to the relationship thing, did you say it's interesting to to, to discuss the absurdity of marriage and long-term relationships. Yes. Is that what you said? Yes. Can you, can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah. It's interesting because it gets so heavy, you know, and each couple is isolated to such a large extent. We're all sort of lying to each other about how our marriages are going or our long-term partnerships. And we're feeling sometimes stuck in our own shame about them. So like, I will try to make light of like, who has not been there in that moment when you want to stick the fork across, you know, whatever, like that we, (laughs) the tension that builds up and the potential boredom and the potential second guessing. And I try to normalize things that we don't say to each other and that we get stuck away in our heads and cause a lot of symptoms, you know? So, yeah. Stick the fork. I'm thinking somebody's throat, neck, eye. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, just like I I use like the I use like the Denny's moment. The couple that has like stopped talking to each other, glaring across their dinner special, and 
they are just seething on the inside and try to help normalize that for people that there's, that's just part of long-term partnership sometimes, and you can fight your way through it. That makes sense to me. (laughs) But are you in a long-term relationship? Yeah. Yeah. I'm married um, 30 years, three kids. I've been kind Mm -hmm. of spoiled because I married a therapist uh, from grad school um a, a college we were classmates um yep so we we know each other's world well and then we're kind of extra aware of pitfalls we fall into them like any other mm-hmm. couple but we kind of know like okay we've got to dig in and tackle this one and can't just leave it festering Hey, thanks for listening to If You've Come This Far. This episode is brought to you by Judson & Moore, distillers of American whiskey right here in Chicago. You can stop by their tasting room uh, located in their distillery uh, just on the west side of the Chicago River and just south of Belmont. And uh, you can grab a delicious cocktail, a bottle of single malts or bourbon or rye. And uh, on many nights you can enjoy some fantastic music they attract some great acts now back to the episode you know back to that whole man therapy thing so man therapy is and and sure i sent this to you i I think you had a chance to look at it they're using humor to sort of uh i think um primarily at least to get men to just open up to the idea that therapy might be the right thing for them Mm-hmm. You're you're using <laughs> you're using humor in therapy, which is which yes. is sort of a, a different ball of wax. I don't I don't I don't hang out a lot with a lot of therapists, but but how unique is this approach of yours? <laughs> First of all, I wouldn't call it an approach per se. I I think it's more of a specialty. Um, He's like Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. You think yeah, I mean? No. I mean I don't think I, he's I doing think, a comedy act. Chris. No, I, I have been accused of that, that sometimes I'm on a roll or a tear, but, but I would say it slightly differently is that, um, that I'm very, very attentive to storytelling as part of what you're doing in therapy. You're, carefully listening to these narratives and sometimes people have gotten themselves trapped in such an overwrought narrative and they can't see any of the lightness there and sometimes the humor helps with forms of hope and desensitizing the person to like this bleakness they've come in and with the air tightness of it so sometimes addressing some of the absurdity one sometimes universalizes, sometimes it cuts the tension, sometimes it offers, like it builds rapport. It's not the main mechanism of treatment. Um, it's a component in um, breaking, helping the person evolve towards new forms of storytelling and disclosure mm-hmm. and new data points. Mm-hmm. And then another thing it is, is just the bottom line is that the fit, there's no, there's so little science to therapeutic outcome. It is almost all modalities and philosophies work if one, the therapist believes in it, and then the client 
believes in it too. They share a shared belief in what they're doing together. And part of my investment and connection happens through humor. I just, that's just part of me being me. So most of the clients I work best with appreciate that part of me being real. I don't, I'm not doing it like a root, a a routine, (laughs) so to speak, you know, Um, and it's not, and it's different for every client. And then I do a lot of trauma work, which I am not hearing a trauma story and interjecting a, oh, that, you know, have you heard the one about? (laughs) Oh, shit. Um, (laughs) Sherm, how many, how many men do you work with? First of all, we had this, someone brought this up on a recent call with us, Sean. Um, Do you refer to your clients as patients? Yeah. It's funny. I kind of go interchangeably, probably more client over the last number of years, but I've been trained in a medical setting. I kind of like the idea that there should be parity on mental health. I mean, I don't kind of like that. I really like, like there, there should be parity. And so if you're a patient of your internist, you can feel free to be a patient of your therapist, but I don't, yeah. I kind of go, they're very interchangeable for me. So I don't, I go both ways. Okay. How many of your clients will go with clients for, for tonight? Yeah, that's um, fine. How many, of your, how many of your clients are men who are seeing you not as a part of a couple's therapy engagement? Yeah. What's interesting is I, I started out almost exclusively with women's issues, which is interesting also as a man working in the space with women's issues. I was really big into gender issues in college and then in grad school and gender, like before it became even a hotter topic, I experienced kind of my own, like what in those days we called androgyny more. Um, But I was fascinated with like, how did we all get shaped to being so dichotomized and lost the gray on gender? Mm -hmm. And that led into eating disorders work really well and women's issues but my colleagues um, were like, I've got really difficult men that they are getting mandated, not court. I mean, I've done some court mandated, but mostly mandated by their loved ones, um, wives and children that they have to go to therapy. And they're, they're like, we need a strong male therapist to work with these people. So little by little, I worked with more and more men. I was not easy. In my first few years working with men, I was so overly hard on them. I had like had listened to so many women's renditions, thought so much about women as victims in so many different ways of male culture that I was not easygoing in the first, like I formally now apologize to all the men I treated in like the first five years of what you're apologizing right now on this podcast. Yes. Right. Right. (laughs) Wow. I still, I still did. I still, I'm over, I'm exaggerating. I did my best and I think I was ultimately still a good therapist, but I, my engagement skills and empathy skills with men, male clients is so much better in the last, whatever, 10, 15 years. Um, So I just started getting more and more. Now I'm probably at like 50, 50 in my caseload. Some will come in as a couple to start with, but 
transition into wanting to do their own individual work. The couple's issue was relatively easy to resolve, or in some cases, the wives have, um, partners have encouraged the men to try couples work. We've heard about this couples therapist that's more irreverent, or he's not as like people go in thinking a therapist is going to be so kind of affectless or kind of uh, ro- more robotic in their empathy style. And so sometimes I'll be sold by a partner to their husband or male partner, just give this a try. They'll come in together. And then if I hit it off with the guy, we'll go into individual work. So just to, I want to make sure I got the, that one part clear. I should, we should all be aware that our therapists are judging the fuck out of us, right? Is that what <laughs> no. you said? Well, no. isn't that what they're supposed to do? <laughs> That's funny. I was thinking about that when I was coming over to this is like, how do you explain what a therapist judgment is and isn't? What is our intuition? Right. I think people misconstrue what I know what I have like extrasensory perception for is process, meaning I can very much tell if someone's hiding something, I can sort of guess what kind, what level of issue they might be hiding, but I don't read minds and I don't, and I'm not, I'm so not judgmental. If you do enough therapy on this deep side, you've listened to all sorts of things that people end up regretting it in these deep ways and feeling shame and remorse for like it's an amazing thing to witness when you start with people who are defiant and blaming others and minimizing things they've done and then through the process they do this deep form of ownership and then come out the other side of that it's like a huge lesson in tolerance on the front end for mm. so many different things that we judge that's kind of the cliche is it's a safe space, right? But but that's really what you want to create. And your judgment should be applied to facilitation. So that means if I can sense a client is all um, bottled up on like, for instance, possibly secrets, my my ability to read them, so to speak, needs to be a put to the service of creating an environment where they're encouraged to unburden eventually. So it's not a parlor, you know, everyone thinks it's kind of a parlor trick, like within 30 seconds, can you whatever, like that's that any good therapist is reinventing everything every time they're open Mm -hmm. to any data that comes in. And when you get into patterns, it really messes with the process. Like, Oh, I've done this before. I've seen right. this before. You're you're gonna miss the reason that person is there, and they're gonna feel it. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sherm, I'm I'm interested in you know as your early work was with women. You started working with men. You you were tough on them because you were informed by your work with women, and and yes. I'm gonna say you were indicting them to a certain extent. Yeah. What changed? What, I mean, how did how did your perspective change, and and what did it move from? Uh, My two. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think what. I, this is how I would say it now years later, but I don't think I was thinking exactly this way at the time. But I think what happened is I realized we're all part of the same effed up system, that men are 
getting distorted and becoming part of this like like trying to reinvent themselves in a certain way, just as confused about how to be men and then executing it in a way that yes, can end up victimizing people, but that they are a kind of victim of this like incredibly overly gender rigid system. So I, and then obviously I had to do my own introspecting because I was like, well, you are a guy, John. And how did you, how did you reconcile with your own, shit and which part of it do you still have to reconcile with and so my heart opened up to that more and I started thinking way more systemically about like what we're all bathed in and and then you're not helping like I felt like well this is a great opportunity to like maybe I can do more good there's so many female clinicians out there there's so many women helping each other there's very mm-hmm. few people that are reaching out to the men who are feeling so isolated and the finger is pointed at them. I figured if you can develop rapport and actually teach them what it's like to be on the women's side through what you've gained, that could be a really kind of important moment. I, I'm going to, I'm going to risk being accused here of like gender stereotyping or gender norming. Mm-hmm. But you described a trajectory earlier where it's like you start out and there's indignance and um, self-righteousness, and then yep. you start to peel things back. And then there's like this suppressed shame. I, yes. I'm, I'm prepared to argue. I'm not really prepared to argue, but, but if, if, if back against the wall, I would be prepared to argue that that, that describes men more readily than it describes women. Yeah. I mean, there are different yeah. forms of shame, Chris. Because women obviously come in with all sorts of their own pockets of shame and things that have silenced themselves and such. But there's a, yes, there's a certain sort of, it's a stereotype, but yes, there's a certain type of shame that men are struggling with and have an even harder time sometimes opening up about. And then we're not great as men offering, I mean, you guys are doing an amazing thing and some other groups of letting men support each other. It's male friendship is a crazy thing. Like you just said, you're like, I've hung out with Sherm for all these years. We're incredibly close. Would have each other's back. I know. I don't know the first thing about him. Um, that's, that's, that's not exactly what I said. I I'm exaggerating, but, um, but male friendship is a, such an interesting, complicated thing. And it doesn't always create a space where you're bringing these kind of things up. So, um, yeah, I thought I really slowed my brain down. I checked my own judgmentalness and I leaned in to how could I create a space that would help men sort of grow and tackle really difficult things that they've been avoiding. Well, so if you guys will sort of at least partly agree that that men could be described that way at least as much as women right yeah does that does it not follow that men more men or at least as many men could benefit from therapy as women and and where yeah. and and so where are we right now i mean I, i'm just saying like in terms of the, the the population of adult men who actually seek help via therapy or seek help at all for that matter Versus the the percentage of women who who probably 
enlist the help of therapists more frequently than men and also have their book groups and, and all the other forms. Like we're, we're lagging, right? Like, I guess that's my, my sort of very long-winded way of making this point. So you're saying like, how are you asking, like, how would we go about getting more men to choose therapy or well, we, I mean, why we, is there this discrepancy yeah. or? I, I I don't I don't know if I need an answer, but but I am curious, yeah. Sherm, if if you how you're seeing sort of things shift, if you're seeing things shift, and how you're seeing things shift. Um, yeah, I think one thing that's I've seen that's improved over time is the way that internists and health professionals are guiding more men to try therapy. So you'll get a lot of things that presented as panic attacks, anxiety depression that internists are getting better at saying, Hey, Joe, do you think sometimes what you're reporting here is a manifestation of stress and an emotional thing? Why don't you try? Have you ever thought of trying therapy? Um, I I think internists are doing a a much better job as the gatekeepers and the first line to orient men to psychotherapy. And then psychotherapists have to do a better job. It's, it's a, the whole thing is so both mystified. And to a lot of men, there's a stereotype that it's so pitched at women's talking style and women's issues, that they are feeling quite threatened, and also kind of edgy about going. Well, I think one of the, I think one of the issues that supports that, and I, I might not have the numbers exactly right, but I think you know when it comes to therapists, only about a third of the therapists are men, right? And so, yeah. so if you've got this demand, and if you've got this demand, and men want to talk to another man, um, right. there ain't any around, and so, no, so, right. so we there needs to be some level of of recruitment of men, I think, into the therapist space. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit better that's going on in like social work, licensed clinical social workers and um, professional school therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a a new pathways for lots of men to come in. And then there is also I mean, and it's not I mean, it it a lot of men will choose to see a man to open up about certain things. But I have so many amazing female colleagues that also have thought about the engagement process with men sure. and learn to like shift things a little bit to make that front end experience more friendly and calming to men. Um, well, and I, and so, I, and I don't want to, and I don't want to minimize it, but, but um, you know, I think what us and other organizations are trying to do is make it easier for men to just talk to other guys. And and that can be a helpful process in and of itself, certainly on a spectrum of mental health, you know, this would probably be down, you know, this would, would be a less urgent kind of situation, but if you can get comfortable talking to other guys that, that can help dramatically in, in helping, helping people through things, I think. Right. Would you agree? No. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that would be not to dissuade um, anyone from coming to see you. To having, <laughs> no, no. Patients. I, well, but that's one of the things that I like doing as a therapist is, is this idea of demystification and teaching that the talking style that I'm engaging in can be replicated and engaged in with their friends, with their partners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 
there's a special art to getting something that someone never intends to say, if that makes sense to you guys, like there is a special gen, you know, that part I can accomplish like good trained therapists. We have a pacing and scope of the project idea and how, when, like the danger in therapy, uh, the art of it comes down to is if you start too fast, you flood someone, they're defenses Mm -hmm. go up. They're like, I'm out of here. But if you go too slow, there's a lethargy and a, like, are we getting anywhere? And I'm just sort of paying for a thoughtful listener. Mm -hmm. So you have to strike a balance. That balance is something a therapist can do really well. But once the content of your mind is outed, so to speak, and then I'm big on encouraging people like what you just did in here, you can replicate with friends and your loved ones, even your children. Like I've like adult and children that are like, no, like an eighth of what their dads have and fathers have ever gone through. I think that I try to make them see that the process can be taken outside of the consulting room and into their Mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. So, so Chris, I'm going to take it another direction unless you want to No, go, go, go for it. Um, Sure. you talked about your work with, with eating disorders T- today. I got, I subscribed to a newsletter, uh, the partnership for male, um, uh, what is it? Partnership for male youth and it's promoting health for adolescent and young, young adult men. Mm-hmm. And the whole newsletter was about, uh, male eating disorders. And, and I think, I would say that for the most part, I think society and our culture would look at eating disorders as 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 a female issue primarily. Um, one, would would you agree with that? Two, if not, why? And three, are you seeing in in your work and in your practice more men and boys dealing with eating disorders? Yeah. So I think that it just we any of us in eating disorders have always seen. Um, men that were less traditionally identified would be of possibly non-binary, gay, questioning, that they were always a population that had more higher rates of eating disorders. You're seeing eating disorders rise in hetero men, which is a more interesting, complicated, not more interesting, but an interesting phenomena. And that's where there is a rise with like intense body image stuff going Mm -hmm. sort of within social media and culture for the ideal male body and sort of body shaming across both genders. Uh, You're seeing a rise in male eating disorders uh, Mm. in hetero men too. Um, It's not, it's not the same numbers you see in women, but yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be looked at and addressed. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and I've done, you know, we've all, anyone specializing, it has a few cases of male eating disorders throughout the year. And it's interesting how similar the themes are in a certain way. And the treatment course is not so dissimilar. Mm -hmm. Well, Sean, I told you, I was going to go in a similar direction and ask you, Sherm, about, um, you talked earlier about, um, the improvement you're seeing in how internists 
are paying attention to mm-hmm. mental health, right? And then referring yeah. their patients to uh, mental health care. Um, I wonder if 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 you're seeing, and maybe you just don't have the right exposure to this. So let me know if you don't. But if you're seeing the same sort of uh, increasingly enlightened, not enlightened, but aware approach by pediatricians. Oh yeah, that's a really good question. I think that yes, um, for are you saying like for eating disorders or for boys, which are, well, I'm talking about for all mental health, like, because the thing is like a doctor can't diagnose you unless you go to the doctor with a problem, or at least if you go to the doctor, right. And the same is true with mental health, right? Like you may never get diagnosed with, if you never go to a therapist or never seek help for your mental wellness, you may never get diagnosed. And so um, I think part of my question is, you know, I, I, I suspect that a lot of our mental health issues develop at a younger age. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be great if we could get in front of that? Yeah. I think that a pediatricians, I think are like the internist being more um, better trained in identifying mental health concerns of children, of children and younger adults. And then a lot of people, a lot of adolescents are still seeing their pediatrician up uh, to a certain point so that they like my sister's a pediatrician up on the North shore and she's super attuned to as her clients age up into the tweet teens, tween and teens, how at risk, which ones are more at risk, helping to create a safe space for them to confess what they need to having a network of therapists and programs she refers to. I think that that's a really good model that's coming about. John, what was the article you sent me about the, the 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 college student peer support program? Yeah, Hamilton College. Uh, given given the lack of resources, they were doing training at at the school for peer support. At least you know. That would be great. Again, again at the level you know when you look at the spectrum of it, um, can they you know can you have a another student support somebody when at least with a with a listening ear. Um, at least to start. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's, um, we talk about like NAMI Chicago is big into like a sort of a standardized peer support program. Um, and I don't think anyone's arguing, and this may lead us into the, into the technology and teletherapy discussion, Sherm, but, um, I don't think anyone's arguing that peer support's ever going to displace or be a substitute for therapy, but it might, be a good augmenting sort of like uh, mode. Yeah, I think, and it has um, lots of extra benefits. For instance, if you emphasize peer support and you create a lot of it, automatically you've got within a peer support system, you've got two or three kids that are adjacent to the kid coming who might be suffering, who have been to therapy or encourage the kid to go, or Mm -hmm. hey, in addition to peer support, have you thought of seeking mental health services and trying to demystify it for that kid, their friend or their peer? And and before we go, just before we go to tech, I'm curious about Sherm's perspective mm-hmm. on just the, the state of the state of affairs, John. I mean, um, you know, given the work that we do, we're well aware of of kind of a lot of the issues with boys and men. And then a couple of weeks ago, the CDC report comes out as it relates to teenage girls and and I mean, the dramatic shit that's going on there, I just I, I I mean, epidemic of anxiety and depression and and loneliness. And I'm just 
are you are you seeing that and and do you have some perspective on where you think it's all coming from it's hard because i think i mean you've got a lot of factors covid was a nightmare obviously for so many things but it was a real big problem for mental health and it was a real big problem for youth and mental health um having your young adult years interrupted having to go back home live in your family and your family under so much stress was a huge problem um other trends i think are related to this that our young people so you've got social media that everyone is starting to talk about right as uh right and the right. stress it's putting people through i think one of the areas that i pick up on and do a lot of work on is the alienation coming about as young people speak a whole new language that their parents don't speak or stumble with or are dismissive of families are blowing up at the dinner table over these conversations that we're having culturally even completely, for instance, liberal families are still blowing up because sometimes you cannot be as liberal as you're like, I've had a kid at Oberlin, that's about as liberal as you and I'm having to take ownership of all sorts of stuff where my blind spots are. And it is not comfortable at 57 as a liberal intellectual therapist to say, I've still got a lot of blind spots according to my children. But for real, I think that that communication process is really stressing a lot of young people out because they don't want to be alienated nor cancel their parents and their families. And yet they are empowered to address certain things and feel compelled to sort of shake people up. So I've done a lot more family work on these themes. I have worked with parents, especially the men who are kind of like, in my house, we will use English the way it's meant to. (laughs) that kind of shit. Yeah. So um, I've taken that on one angry dug in parent at a time. I'm over here laughing after just posting about how proud I was about my 14 year old lambasting a CNN reporter for not using the Oxford comma. It was like, (laughs) it was like the highlight of of February for me. Um, So I think it's a subtle generate. It's a generational, like every generation has these generational tensions and wars going on but ours is hit really in an interesting way around policing everyone's psychology attitudes and language and trying to find a way to integrate what our young people are sending out to us and how much help they need navigating gender class race and a lot of families are struggling with how to stay in there with that kid that maybe feels they feel is being indignant or too bratty about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can create an even greater sense of alienation for a lot of young people. Yeah. I mean, I think at some level, I mean, I, you know, I, I can see where there's impasses at times, but I mean, it's at some level, can, can we get everybody to remain curious and open about, each other. Um, I mean, even the children, if they're close to having conversation and and the parents is obviously closed and there's nothing going to happen, but can both sides find some, some openness and wonder about, about the other. Right. I mean, no, I, absolutely. I absolutely. But you've got like over the last couple of years, I have more, for instance, dads referred whose 
are not navigating, let's say a child's transitioning or a child, yeah. adolescent transitioning, they're yeah. losing like a son mm-hmm. who's becoming a dog, like, and no, and that's not, there's not a lot of empathy out there. You're supposed to right. switch right away. I create a space where that dad or mom, whoever a parent can mourn and talk through mm-hmm. how jarring that is. And mm-hmm. how are they like, they're going to try to show up language wise and gesture wise, but what about what's going on inside of them? Sure. That kind of yeah. thing is, I think, one of the places like a sort of therapeutic environment creates a space where some of the fallout or the the emotional journey you're on to get up to speed can be addressed, even though you want to say you're you are 100 percent in support of whatever issue it is. Therapy can often provide a space to be this honest reflecting point of I'm not actually 100 percent there yet. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, it was really interesting to hear, Sherm, you talk about the the dinner table gap, right? So are are yeah. we all are, are are you guys, are we all sort of agreeing that the sort of the gap between us and our parents in the seventies and the eighties, the gap uh, along the metrics of like wokeness and language and political leaning, w- was like a fraction of what it is between kids and parents these days. I feel that way, but I don't know. Like I know sociologists will say every generation has had almost a similar level of generational tension. I think one of the differences I've seen is that the young people are far more empowered to not give ground. And there's, Ah. and, and so I think it's way harder for some of the parents to like tolerate being dismantled and disempowered i i've just seen way more retaliation shaming and like resistance going on in the family dynamic and on um, on, on the part of the kids yeah and then the couples can be split which is um, so you've got um often what i'm working with is a a more, a far more left-leaning mom, let's say, and a somewhat dug in more moderate dad. And that couple is in distress over the last few years of the language stuff and the Trump era and stuff. And then the kid is inadvertently exploiting that tension that's not being addressed. And I don't think we can ignore, you know, the difference in time. I don't think we can ignore the, the, the tidal wave of information every day yeah. about about a particular position that you're on and the reinforcement over and over and over again. So talk about getting yeah. dug in. I mean, if you have this perspective and then and then you're on yeah, yeah. whatever feeds you're on to get it reinforced constantly, I think it create you know that information creates even even more. Um, you know, dissent or disagreement than, than we were going yeah. through back in the day or, or self-righteousness or, 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 or whatever. I mean, sure. and, and the thing I, is back in the day, we, we were more inclined as kids to just get in fucking line. Right. Like, like, like this is what your dad says. So yeah. shut up. Right. Or I mean, and I'm exaggerating obviously for illustration, um, but kids these days, and probably it's, good for us i think good for yeah. the future of the world that our kids hold pretty tightly to to their values i mean a lot yeah, of times they, they're they're not well informed but 
Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that, plus there's this interesting I, dilemma of like what it means to be called out by your kids and they won't give you the recipe to heal it. They will say, that's your right. work to do. And we're like, um, where am I supposed to do that work? <laughs> um, can, this is when humor comes in. Yeah. <laughs> and I've often helped because of thinking through my own process of that. I've then tried to guide especially some of my male clients to thought process of how to work on be reconnecting with their kids on some of this stuff, finding like the one authentic, a hundred percent apology they can muster up, you know, mm, there's so much yeah. defensiveness in that moment. And I will often say like, you've got to take a hundred percent ownership of a piece of this. And then your kids often calm down. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Or your wife in some cases when the couple is split over some of these themes and topics. So I don't think mm -hmm. I've ever used as much sociology uh in like the early years of practicing as I have, which my I like that part because I that's where my sort of like culture criticism and stuff from Duke and from undergrad comes in. And I and I really like the young people pushing the envelope and when I work with them one-on-one, -on -one, they can sense, um, they can sense that I kind of am behind them in some ways, but then I try to pick their brain like, well, what would constitute a good apology? You know, I'll pick the brain of my young adults and adolescents under like, what would actually get your parents considered like more woke and like then teach that back to other other clients as I move forward in the process, you know? Right. Right. I know we're running up against time. I want to, I wanted to ask one more sort of big, broad question that we don't have to go too deeply into before we, we wrap up. Uh, Sherm, how are you on time, by the way? Well, I'm great on time. I'm terrible on battery power, which is 7%. Oh shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, it's the, uh, we can't plug his phone in cause we got the earphones going into it. It's a shit show. Um, real yeah. quick, Sherm, I mean, I mean, telehealth technology and mental oh, health care, yeah. but also now increasingly conversations around AI and, and will AI start oh, to, yeah. So, so we talked earlier about people talking about certain advances in technology, augmenting things, but not replacing them. Can you give us your, your take on where we are right now on, you know, sort of the new age of the stuff? I will just, my limited lived experience on this, um, the phone, uh, Zoom and FaceTime and all the phone platforms, virtual platforms turned out to actually be really, really helpful and mostly effective throughout COVID. I think most of my colleagues and I would say we were really nervous about that. That turned out to be really good, but it's not, but you've got really trained clinicians switching over to the phone. The thing that concerns me is with all these e access sites, like that have like a bat, like a whole bat, a battalion of therapists, you do not know the training or the level of skill. So right. if you add phone plus an absence of skill, I'm worried about that. I don't. So if you've yeah. got all these seasoned clinicians switching over to virtual and increasing access and such, that's, I think, gone really well. Um, I'm concerned with things for like the sites, like for 
him and for hers kind of thing, where people can go straight to psychiatric medication with yeah. almost no barrier for um, like interviewing and contextualization. For instance, I treat lots of male sexual issues. They are some of the most misunderstood and mistreated issues in the field. So much medicine, contraptions, devices, misinformation. I do these deep interviews on male sexuality after like putting my head into this years ago and can help guide men out of sexual issues without any injections, pills, um, adding tea and this and that. And that's just a huge recipe for like, if you have this problem, you have all this shame, you go straight out online and can get almost any pharmaceutical for the problem. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's, that's scary. So, so in short, the risk is not as much about a reduced efficacy from being on two sides of a computer mm -hmm. screen. It's those other factors that worry you. Yeah. Um, um, I know that your batteries, what's your battery at now? Okay. My life is at 3%. Oh shit. Three quick questions, Sherm. I hate to yeah. rush us, but um, um, what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? Oh, geez. Um, have more fun. Enjoy your childhood more. You're going to be a really good therapist, but you can run around and goof around more. You don't have to think deep thoughts all the time. <laughs> Oh, so personal. Um, do you have, Sherm, do you have a mantra in life or a mantra these days? Oh man, Lozier. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I have a, I have a kind of, I like a lot of the Buddhist stuff, but even though I don't practice, meaning I, I am going to try not to control such, let things come at me. I'm prepared to handle them. I cannot control destiny. I will live one day at a time and mm -hmm. I will use my loved ones around me and special wise people around me. I'm very much into diversification and finding that wise person. Awesome. Um, you're really going to hate me for this one. What do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Oh, geez. Lozier. He was a killer <laughs> guitar player. Much better, <laughs> Lo much better than Lozier. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to, yeah, he, like he melted my face. That's what they're yeah, going <laughs> to. Exactly. No, I don't know. I want to be like, I want to be considered that I could be thought of as someone that was sophisticated, but brought that with a big heart. I want to know that people will think that I was learned how to not distance from them, how to be in the process with them. They could feel my presence, even though I'm bringing a lot of theory and culture and learning and shit. I don't want that to be the main thing. He was a genius. I wanted to be at big heart and was very present for a problem. And he melted my face. That yeah. too. <laughs> um, this is a weird call because we're going to sign off and I'm going to see you in about two seconds, Sherm. Yeah, um, I like but it. Yeah, I do too. We should do more of these in person, Sean. Sure. I just want him to hang on until his phone dies. And that's how he oh, right. that's how he right. that's, that that's how he cuts. Yeah, that's how he cuts out. There it is. And there it is. He's gonna be coming out here in a second. That's so funny. <laughs> Um, I will catch up with you later, my friend. All right, peace and love, bud. Peace Tell John I enjoyed it. Yeah, All I right. will. I will. Thanks. All right. See ya. All right, bye. 
This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.